0: Well, good evening. evening. Listen, I'm a Baptist preacher. You have to talk back to me. (laughs) Good evening, everyone. That's better. Praise the Lord. Give yourselves a round of applause for being here. And deeply grateful to be back in Baltimore, Maryland, where I served for about five years as senior pastor of the Douglas Memorial Community Church. I'm grateful to the members of that congregation for putting up with me for five years. And I'm grateful to this August body for inviting me to be here on this very special occasion. To your Archbishop and mine, the most Reverend William Laurie, to your mayor and mine, Catherine Pugh, whose political career I remember during my time here and I've watched with great interest. To all of the clergy across many faith traditions and the leaders, I'm sitting next to the chief of police, I was trying to be on my best behavior. (laughs) And to this wonderful choir, in the future in great hands, come on. of you, my sisters and my brothers, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. It is as the precious ointment upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garment. It is as the dew of Hermon. There God commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Thank you so very much. I'm I'm humbled and grateful to be here. Now we are an ecumenical gathering. God is known by many names and worshiped in many houses. But of one blood, God has called all nations to dwell upon the face of the earth, we might seek after God and yet God is not far from any one of us in him we live and move and have our being. What a wonderful gathering of the children of God. Now for those of you who are Catholic and Episcopalian Every now and then, if you hear somebody talk back to me, don't get afraid, those are just Baptists, that's what we do. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Now, if you don't do that in your tradition, that's fine. Just sit quietly. Just don't be afraid. We love those who are quiet and reflective as well. We call the Episcopalians the frozen chosen. <laughs> I grew up in the Pentecostal church. So I bring a little learning and burning. I'm Penabaptist, Baptocostal But I'm grateful to be in this wonderful cathedral. Will you bow with me and will you reach out and join hands with your neighbor? And I saw a great multitude of men and women, boys and girls, gathered together on a hill There they were, diverse and variegated, hailing from the four corners of the earth, yet they looked into each other's eyes and they were not afraid. And so I asked the one standing there, what is this? And he said, it is the kingdom of God imbued with love and justice. And so I asked where is this and he answered it exists already in the hearts of those who have the courage to believe and struggle. And so I asked when is this and he answered when we learn the simple art of loving each other as sisters and brothers. And so, O God, give us wisdom, give us courage for the living of these days, for the facing of this hour, as we bear witness to your kingdom. O God, who loves us into freedom and frees us into loving, to you we offer this prayer. Amen. I saw a new heaven, and a new earth. Behold, I make all things new. I just want to talk for a little while about a new heaven and a new earth. The spirit of Martin Luther King, Jr. draws us to this place. And as we remember him, we would do well to remember why he went to Memphis where he would meet his destiny in the first place. He went to Memphis fighting for those on the margins of the margins. It was 1968. Garbage collectors fighting for their basic human dignity. We're trying to get a movement started and if we are honest tonight, the church was slow to get on board. I don't know if it was the politics of respectability. I don't know if it was a lack of courage or uncertainty. It's difficult sometimes to discern in the moment what to do. The movement had a lot of fits and starts and then on February 1st, can I tell the story? Two garbage collectors by the name of Echo Cole and Robert Walker were literally crushed. The bodies were crushed in the compactor area of their garbage trucks and their shed blood provided fuel for a movement that finally got started. Poor and marginalized, crushed by the machinery of systemic oppression. They were there in the back of that garbage truck in the first place because the curious logic of Jim Crow segregation said that they could not ride in the front of the truck and so they were in the compactor trying to find some shelter from the storm, but from the storm of racism and classism, there was no hiding place. So they were crushed and Dr. King made his way to Memphis and then he made his way to Memphis again. And then on April 4th, he met his destiny on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. But what I want you to know tonight is that he was scheduled to preach at our church. He was scheduled to preach at Ebenezer on April seventh, 1968. And there among the effects in his briefcase were the early thoughts of a sermon he never lived to preach. We don't know the text But the title was, Why America May Go to Hell. I I know that's shocking, but don't get mad at me, that's Dr. King's sermon. You're here to celebrate him, right? Perhaps it's hard for us to imagine Dr. King preaching a sermon entitled, Why America May Go to Hell, because Dr. King, Although he lived and died long before our current era, years ago, he was already the victim of identity theft. In other words, when Dr. King died, we resurrected a new Martin Luther King Jr. One who does not make us too uncomfortable, and so it's hard for us to imagine the prophet of peace, preaching with such harsh words, but you ought to remember that it was not the first time that Dr. King spoke to the country that he loved so much with some challenging words. He said to America a year before he died in that famous Vietnam War speech. in The Riverside Church, he called America the greatest purveyor of violence on the globe. He said that the nations of our world are caught up in a colossal contest supremacy, and I'm sad to admit that my nation is the supreme culprit. In other words, he was the best kind of patriot because he loved the country enough to tell the country the truth. Now is a time for truth telling. Now is a time to call the nation to be the best. To stand tall with moral excellence to push past the predictable partisan arguments of the public square and catch a glimpse of the vision of a new heaven and a new earth. It's bigger than Republican politics, bigger than Democratic politics. It is God's vision of a new heaven and a new earth. And whenever people of faith catch a vision of what God intends, it makes folk on the right and the left uncomfortable. And So that's why in recent days, I've been drawn. I've been drawn to the book of Revelation. We don't deal much with this book in our churches. And I submit to you that we need revelation in a time like this. Don't be afraid of the book. It just reminds us that our God reigns. Our God reigns in the heavens above and the earth below. It reminds us that although it may not seem like it in the moment, our God really is up to something in this world. And I want to be wherever God is reminds us that evil and injustice will never have the last word. Revelation encourages us to fight, to fight on knowing in the words of George Frederick Handel who was simply lifting words from Revelation that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and he shall reign forever and ever. And if you know that, if you know that, you don't mind making your way to Memphis even with death threats all around, because you remember that you, you serve one who was born in a barrio called Bethlehem, raised in a ghetto called Nazareth, and one day he made his way into Jerusalem where prophets die. We Christians celebrated not long ago Palm Sunday. I hope you preachers up here didn't tell them it was a parade or a processional. It was really a protest march. Jesus was making his way on the east side of the city at the same time Pilate, the governor, would have been coming in on the west side. You understand, east side, west side. I'm in Baltimore. See the governor, followed by all of his military might, surrounded by cavalry, Jesus comes in on a donkey. What is he up to? It is, it is a parody of imperial power. It is a mocking of, of power that is too impressed with itself, makes its way into Jerusalem and Then he sits down for a meal by Thursday, a Passover meal with friends, because contrary to what we Christians think, Jesus was not a Christian. He lived and died a Jew. He sat down for a Jewish Passover meal, which reminds the people of God that God is the God who delivers us out of Egypt, out of the hand of Pharaoh into the promised land, into the good and spacious land. It is a land of human flourishing where everybody can live, where everybody has enough to eat. It is the vision of a new heaven and a new earth, and it is that vision that brings him into conflict with the powers that be. So Jesus died executed by the empire, lynched on a tree. Martin made his way into Memphis. But if you believe that the kingdoms of this world belong to God, and if you remember that he rose with all power in his hand and that he said, be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life then that causes you to stand up in the midst of injustice. It won't allow you to be silent. So by the time we get to Revelation, the church movement is under attack. Nowadays, the church is seldom under attack, at least not for the right reasons. Perhaps we're not under attack by the powers because too often... We're in cahoots with the powers. You know, the the simple folk that I grew up with down in Savannah, Georgia, used to say that if if you never have a head-on collision with the devil, that means you're riding in the same car. So the John, John, the writer of this letter, is not, is not some otherworldly thinker thinking about some life that is transhistorical. It is eschatological in character, to be sure, but it is a critique of this world. He is an inmate in Rome's prison industrial complex. And this is his letter from a Roman jail, kind of like Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. This is no pie-in-the-sky religion. He is writing in memory of a brother who was lynched on a tree. It is the language of the oppressed, because oppressed folk have to find a way to talk to one another so that they know what they're talking about when they're talking about it, and other folk don't know what they're saying. It's the arts of resistance. The Roman emperor self-important, declared himself kurios kai dios, Lord and God. This movement offered no ultimate allegiance to him. They dared to say that the one executed by Rome's method of capital punishment was Lord and God. Oppressed people have to speak to each other in coded language. Martin Luther King Jr. did not emerge out of nowhere, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He was a part of a great faith tradition of a people who trusted God when they couldn't hear nobody pray. Long before he became the leader of the movement, He was a part of a faith tradition of religion and resistance of faith and struggle for freedom. Held from a people who formed their churches and their churches were born fighting for freedom and they used to sing about that freedom in the coded language that oppressed people use to speak. And so they say, steal away to Jesus. Ain't got long stay here. And the master thought they were talking about some pie-in-the-sky religion. What he didn't know is that later on that night they were going to steal away. They sang, I got shoes. Stripped of material, basic material necessities, they dared to sing, I got shoes. You got shoes. All of God's children got shoes. When I get to heaven, it's a critique of this world. I'm going to put on my shoes. I'm circumscribed right now, but guess what? I'm going to shout all over God's heaven. And then they give the master what we call side eye and say, heaven, heaven. Everybody talking about heaven. Ain't a going there. They were talking about a new world order. Then I saw a new heaven and the new earth. For the old world order, the first heaven and the first earth it passed away. And I came all the way from Atlanta to suggest that voices of faith and moral courage ought to lead the way. We ought to be raising our voices, fighting for God's kingdom, imbued with love and justice, where everybody can eat where everybody has medicine, where everybody has education, where every child has a chance. Do you believe in a new heaven? And a new earth, a new heaven. And a new earth, the longing for a new order, Not some uninformed reminiscences of an old order. No, no desire to make Rome great again. I'm just preaching the text. Whatever your politics, you ought to be suspicious of this idea not of greatness, but of againness. Because as a person of African descent, I have to ask, when was this again? Was it when I was three fifths of a human being? Was it when women could not vote? No, a new heaven and, and a new earth, Dr. King went to Memphis and died in Memphis fighting for that. And you ought to keep fighting. Don't don't give up. Don't give up on America. Don't give up on our children. Don't you dare give up on God. Triplet evils, he said, of racism, poverty, and war. Racism, we're still dealing with it. It is that old sin. We don't like to talk about it in America, but you can't heal a disease without a diagnosis. Without a diagnosis, there's no prescription. We can talk about racism in so many ways, but let me just say that in America today, we live with this tragic irony. all of the racialized barriers that Dr. King lived to pull down and to be sure he accomplished much. Those who say nothing has changed don't get it, a whole lot has changed. We ought to pay homage to those who who died too young and gave so much, red, yellow, brown, black, and white. Not, Not just black folk, but a white woman named Paula Luiso who gave her life, to Jews and an African-American, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman who gave their lives, so many others who gave their lives. And yet many of the racialized barriers have reinvented themselves within the context of what that brilliant legal mind, Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow, mass incarceration, in the age of colorblindness. And so today, three years ago today, Freddie Gray lost his life. But I submit to you, Baltimore, that as tragic as those incidents are, they are tragic and predictable. Because while we abhor police brutality, and Dr. King was talking about police brutality, did you know that, in 1963, He said, some are asking, when will we we be satisfied? We will not be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim. As long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. He said that in the I have a dream speech. We don't even like to hear the whole I have a dream speech. We've cherry picked Dr. King. He said, as long as the Negro is the victim of police brutality. In other words, he recognized that there was racial bias. And he was honest about it. Translation, it was the 1963 version of Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Don't, don't get mad at me. And don't get mad when folks say black lives matter. That's part of what it means to be an oppressed people. Say so all lives matter, of course. And that's the point. <laughs> can, can I can I help you? Part of what it means to be an oppressed people is that you have to have a campaign and a movement to declare about yourself that which ought to be obvious. 50 years ago, have you thought about it? No, it's kind of like Sunday school. You've seen it so often, you haven't thought about it. 50 years ago, I am a man. Why would anybody have to say that? What it means to be an oppressed person is you have to have a movement to declare about yourself that which ought to be obvious, I am a man. I am a man. So during the truth, 19th century, asking rhetorically, challenging racism and sexism, ain't I a woman? Black Lives Matter. In Dr. King's lifetime, there were less than 200,000 people in America's prisons. In 1980, there were about 300,000 or so Americans in prison. Today, there are 2.3 million Americans in prison most of them are there for nonviolent drug related offenses in america's so-called war on drugs we warehouse in america 25% of the world's prisoners nobody else comes close not even china with a billion people we've got them beat we've got we, we warehouse 25% of the world's prisoners in the so-called war on drugs. And here's the irony, when they come out, or even if they don't serve much time or, or no time at all, when our children take a plea sometimes for a marijuana charge, and we, we, we deplore drug use, to be sure, But some children are taken down to central booking, others are taken home. Issue is not simply drugs. Raise your hand if you ever tried some weed. You're in church now. 35 years, we've had a war on drugs. And so when they get out, 1964 civil rights law, completely undermined. 1965 voting rights law for them undermined. Why? Because job discrimination legal. You have to check the box. Housing discrimination legal. Voting discrimination, Legal. Matter of fact, my church had an expungement event last year. We did in one day in church what it takes 120 days to do. We convinced all of our government entities, Mayor Pugh, to come together. And in one day, we did expungements for people's criminal arrest records. Because there are folk who've been arrested, <laughs> never convicted, some have been acquitted and yet they can't move forward in life because they have an arrest record. And so that day in church, everybody in church had a record. Now that I think about it, that's true every Sunday and every Saturday night, Friday night, everybody in in all of our houses of faith has a record. We expunged those records. I was in the barbershop not long ago, believe it or not, true story, I was in the barbershop. This man came up to me, said, Rev, thanks for doing that expungement event. I said, God bless you. I thought he had seen it on the news. He said, no, you expunged my record. He looked respectable, had on a jacket and a nice button-down shirt. said, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, I had, I had a check issue with a bad check. 20 years, I haven't been able to get a good job. You expunged my record. And I have a much better job than any job I've ever been able to get because I didn't have to check the box. Quality of life improved. I said, God bless you. He said, no, it's better than that. He said, there's a young couple in my family. They they had a young baby. They had a baby. They weren't able to take care of the baby. The baby needed to be adopted two years ago. I would not have been able to do anything for them. Defects would not have allowed me to adopt a baby, but because you cleared my record, I was able to save this child from foster care. Two generations saved because of some grace and mercy. So we're now trying to expand that program across the state and across the country. But for 35 years, Freddie Gray, the tip of the spear. That's physical death. Those who can't get jobs, can't get an apartment, they suffer social death. For 35 years, we've had a war on drugs. Now, back then, we were dealing with heroin, crack. Now, we're dealing with meth and opioids, it's interesting to me that now we have a public health emergency. I'm glad we've become so enlightened now that the bodies are suburban, rural, and white. Public health emergency in a war you have enemy combatants public health crisis you have patients i'm glad we take we're taking this approach i just want to know As I think about the war on drugs that did as much devastation to places like Baltimore as the drugs themselves, I just want to know where is the restorative justice package for the inner cities like Baltimore that have been devastated by 35 years of this so-called war? Got to deal with racism. We've got to deal with poverty. It's expensive to be poor. Poor people have to work two, three jobs in 1968. When Dr. King went to Memphis to fight for those workers, do you know that the minimum wage in 1968 had more purchasing power than it does today? We're still crushing the poor in the compactor of systemic oppression. And if the church, if people of faith, if the mosque and the synagogue will not speak up, who will? The Kaiser Family Foundation just did a study and it showed that Christians are more likely than the rest of the population to blame the poor for their poverty. There's something wrong with the theology that's coming from too many of the the pulpits of the American church. I, I preach in memory of that one who said I came to preach good news to the poor. You cannot say you love God whom you have not seen and not love the poor whom you see every day. Don't talk about poor people like they're not human. It makes me so mad. and I believe that it disturbs God. Most poor people are children. I was one of those children. You invited me because I'm in King's pulpit. But long before I was in King's pulpit, I was a little boy growing up on the west side of Savannah in Caden Holmes housing projects. Didn't have much money. My parents though gave me faith and a sense of humor. My parents had so much faith, you know, they used to just live in the world of the Bible. They were Pentecostal preachers. And so they spoke to us in King James English. (laughs) Thou shalt wash the dishes, (laughs) lest I smite thee with my rod and my (laughs) staff. They instilled in us, Archbishop, a deep sense of faith. And so I decided, because I believed in myself and I believed in God, don't give up on yourself, believe in yourself, young people. I I decided when I was just a young boy that I was going to Morehouse College because Dr. King went to Morehouse College. I had no idea I'd end up in his church. (laughs) I went to Morehouse on a full faith scholarship. When I got there, there were those who were already driving fancy cars, dressed like they were already working on Wall Street, and they were students. And I didn't have enough money really for the the first semester, but I went to Morehouse on a full faith scholarship. I turned to my parents as they were getting ready to drop me off as a young freshman, and I just wanted a few dollars, you know, to make it. And my dad a veteran of World War II, strong man, loving father, looked at me, true story, spoke to me in King James English. He said, silver and gold, hath I none. But such as I have, give I unto thee the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ go with you. Put his arms around me and they drove off into the horizon. Four years later, some of those guys who were driving BMWs were driving by the stage. I was standing on the stage getting my degree. I was 18 years old. I returned 18 years later as the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. Now, I'm almost done. but but I I, I had a sense of responsibility. Personal responsibility, yes. Inner drive, yes. Discipline, hard work, yes. We believe in all of that. But somebody gave me a Pell Grant. Somebody gave me a low interest guaranteed student loan. I'm trying to tell you, don't buy into this lie about personal responsibility and, and public responsibility. you got to be responsible for yourself and we are responsible for one another. America, invest in your children. It's the greatest resource that we have. All children ought to have a chance. Give all of our children a chance. All sides of town. Now I saw a new heaven. The new Earth, racism was gone. Poverty was gone. Racism, poverty. And then finally, Dr. King talked about war. And some are beating the drums of war even tonight. Pray for our nation, but as you think about the geopolitical situation, let us resist the demons of militarism in our that disturb our domestic situation. We've got more guns in America than there are people. Don't ever forget that Dr. King was himself the victim of gun violence. And know that his, his own beloved mother, just a few short years later was shot and killed in our sanctuary by a deranged young man who had a gun and no mental health care while she was praying the Lord's Prayer, playing it on the organ. Killed her and one of our deacons, Deacon Boykin. It would have been a bloodbath in 1974 if he had had an AR-15. So I'm proud of these young people who are standing up in the Black Lives Matter movement and in the March for Our Lives and in the Me Too movement. Because I still believe in the vision of a new heaven and a new earth. Do I get tired and weary sometimes? Of course I do. And When I get tired and weary, I just look up Because I'm a preacher, I'd love to tell you that when I look up, I see some grand and lofty vision, the very thing of God riding across the milky deep in Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. Truth be told, all I usually see is birds flying by. But I love to see birds fly by. I especially like to see geese, because geese fly in a V formation. Pelicans flap their wings faster, but they don't go as far. You wanna go fast, fly alone. If you wanna go far, fly together. Geese fly in a V formation, and the one out front that's getting all the glory and the sunshine, the one that you wanna hate on because he's out front, getting all of the media attention, The one out front, if he's a real leader, is actually working the hardest, (laughs) leading by example. What I like about Geese is that when the one out front grows tired, he just moves further back into the formation, and another one moves up and takes her place. And geese do that without a church schism. They do that without a war. They do that without one side of the geese formation deciding to shut the whole geese government down. Why? Because geese understand that my individual location is not as important as our collective destination. And so if you want to celebrate Dr. King, you don't have to be Dr. King. Just have as much sense as a goose. Pray together. Struggle together. Plan together. Work together fight together, stand together, we shall overcome. Please stand as we sing, lift every voice and sing.